The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. Now I'm joined by Hugh O'Connell, Deputy Political Editor at the Irish Independent, and Adrian Sweeney, Director of Paris Court Springs Health Farm, and of course here uh, in News Talk in our newsroom to look through the stories making the news today. And I suppose that the one thing that is occurring a lot in a lot of the newspaper coverage and a lot of the news discussion is the issue of migration and how well it is being managed or how poorly it is being managed and how significant it's becoming in political discourse. And Adrienne, to start with you, there's a piece in the uh, Mail. They've done a, a survey of public reaction and the survey of public reaction, in essence, says the government is making a hames of it. Yeah, so in the Irish Daily Mail uh, today, it's a really interesting piece of research and it says that more than half of the population disapprove of the government's handling of um, the immigration issue here. And, you know, it's not really surprising that that's the finding, but at the same time, um, it is a little bit alarming for those uh, in power as well, especially coming into local election time, etc. But, um, you know, it's tapping into uh, a lot of discontent in the country and I think in the Irish Independent and newspaper, it's really interesting to actually introduce some actual facts into this argument rather than, um, you know, just each community bringing up their feelings about people coming in. And the distribution of um, asylum seekers in the country, there's a map of Ireland laid out and each county is um, is listed with the number of asylum seekers. And it, it is really interesting to see the distribution of um, people across the country. You know, we... A lot of communities we were discussing earlier are saying that they, the rural areas feeling they have um, an unfair burden placed on them without a lot of huge amount of services in their communities. But um, And that, I think that stands true for Donegal. Donegal has 1,686, which is far more than Wicklow. And Wicklow has um, a huge amount of services being right beside Dublin. Dublin itself, I know there's a complete lack of housing in Dublin, but there's 9,310 in Dublin. But Which it, seems low given that Dublin holds, what, nearly a third of the population? Yeah, and you would think that there might be more high-density housing available in Dublin. But, um, you know, Mayo and uh, Donegal on the west coast are really bearing the brunt of of the of the immigration uh, into their counties but there is quite a widespread um i just think it's interesting really to see that there are some counties that aren't also um bearing the burden of it and it's um and there's some coverage as well in relation to the impact that burden is i mean burden sounds pejorative but the impact that that um, distribution of refugees is having for instance, in Ross Grey, where there is the issue that apparently the only hotel in Ross Grey is now being converted into a centre for asylum seekers. Yeah, I, so there's 576 asylum seekers going into Tipperary. Um, but I do think as well, it's not only the distribution, it's also um, the the makeup of the asylum seekers. So just about half are uh, 11,469 are single males. And that's such a hot topic at the moment. And it's the, it's the bone that a lot of people are chewing on. And I know a lot of people have a lot of fears around it. And it's still a communications issue that I think the government hasn't actually tackled successfully yet. Um, Hugh, we were speaking earlier just about how um, there is some miscommunication as well being brought out. Like, that seemed, the big big fear seems to be around single (coughs) adult males and like some people use this terrible term, military age males, you know, um, which has all sorts of connotations with it. And one of the biggest myths we have at the moment is about uh, all these people are unvetted, that they're coming into the country and there's no vetting carried out. These people are fingerprinted when they come into the country. Their their names and their fingerprints are checked against international databases. If there is a record of criminality, then they are dealt with differently. So 
I think that that has to be taken into account well, when, let me when we talk about this. Bit. If yeah. you are coming from a country which is so war-torn and mm. deep in strife sure. that you need to seek international protection, it is unlikely that their native in that country criminal justice system and the bureaucracy that supports it well, it's, will be of it's top quality. It's possible that that is the case, that they, like, they may be criminals, but there is no actual criminal record. or They may be bad people and there's no record of, of being a bad person. So... You know, that that is possible, but I do think we need to dispel some of the... I mean, and that's what the Indo piece today, my, my colleague Catherine Fegan is trying to do, is dispel some of these myths that that, that, that are around. And I think the map is, as Adrienne uh, talked us through in detail there, is really interesting because it does get, get to the bottom of this issue of are there certain parts of the country that are taking disproportionately uh, more um, uh, asylum seekers than or international protection applicants than, than, than others? And yeah, look, it, look, I mean, if you look at the map, you can see... The whole, not the whole Northwest, but a large part of the Northwest, uh, where they are taking um, uh, their share of international protection applicants is higher than their uh, share of the overall population. So that's something I think the government's going to have to be cognizant of. Yeah, it's done cleverly in that the, they, they've done the, the way the map is broken yeah. down is colour coded, so it shows which counties are taking a disproportionate yeah. amount of international protection. So then, if you look, like if you look at other part of the country, like the the, the Southwest, for example, Kerry, Limerick, Cork, um, they are taking a lower share. Um, so Now the one interesting thing then when you juxtapose that with what the Irish Daily Mail has Adrian, they have done in their survey they have a poll that says that three quarters of the population of Ireland say that the level of immigration into Ireland is now too high Now that's effectively three out of four people in this country saying we are full I mean I don't think a lot of people aren't arguing with that obviously um, I, I think possibly what we have done. We've started to tackle the issue. We've obviously started to tackle the immigration issue in relation to Ukrainians coming in, changing the weekly payment that they're getting. So that is a large part of it. I think we probably reacted very fast when that conflict broke out and potentially created a problem for ourselves by making ourselves so attractive. Um, And then likewise, uh, our hotels were filled up, etc., with um, Ukrainian immigrants and that um, affected our tourism sector. And immigration is an issue that's not going to go away and it's 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 intrinsically linked with the housing crisis and it's a perfect storm really for Well that's the thing does this have flashpoint written all over it if you have three quarters of the people saying that we are we are quotes at this point have have too much in the way of immigration and we are seeing things like buildings that were due to host uh, immigrants bursting into flames overnight that doesn't bode well for the coming months, does it? It certainly doesn't. But we have to also remember that, you know, when people are putting themselves into lorry containers and shipping themselves across the world, you know, there are people that genuinely do need asylum in, in your country. And, and we just, we don't, we, we are, we, we are running out of space. We have people in tents around the country. There's no denying that. But how do we nearly roll back and find a solution for it at this stage? Put the political hat on then, Hugh. Is this going to be the issue for the local elections? I think it's going to be one of the issues, uh, and I, you know, I think it's tied into issues like housing, for example, which I think is the the preeminent issue. Um, but you know, I I don't think we should get too uh, wrapped up in it necessarily. I mean, I think there will be other issues that emerge as the year progresses, and and like I do think that it's hard not to though when you look at things oh, like no, the totally. riots look, before I mean, Christmas. When, when you look at like what's happened over the last few months, it, it, 
obviously you're looking at it through the you're looking at it through the prism of the local and European elections coming up. But I don't think it'll be the sole issue. I don't think it'll be necessarily the dominant issue. I think that things will change over the coming months in terms of the level of government communication around this, in terms of communication improving, in terms of more accommodation become becoming available potentially, but also fewer people potentially coming in. I mean, in terms of the policy changes with respect to Ukrainian refugees, I think that's going to ultimately result in fewer Ukrainian refugees coming in. That's going to create uh, you know, more space per- perhaps for, for the international protection applicants coming in. And what's your analysis, in. you do? And, and one, of the fi- one of the things I'd just say, Anton, is that like, if you look at the figures, the number of um, single adult males coming into the country I think has dropped in recent weeks. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't have the figures to hand, but I do know I, I read something earlier in the week where the, the proportion of people, of, of, of asylum seekers coming into the country, the proportion of them who are single adult males has been dropping. So... You know, things are changing and I think as we, you know, as we get, I could be wrong, but as we get into May, June, local European election time, uh, other issues will come to the fore, I think. And this might not be as dominant an issue then as it is now. What do you think has made it a dominant issue? Well, I, Is it the, the numbers or is it the fermenting of the reaction to it, the numbers? It's, it's, it's the fermenting of the reaction to the numbers, I think. It's, it's, it's the riots, as you, as you alluded to. I mean, but let's, let's not forget the riots were largely people engaging in antisocial behaviour uh, who were, you know, not had no real view or ideological uh, opposition to, to, to migration. But obviously there were people who do uh, have, a, have uh, uh, opposite, who are ideologically opposed to immigration uh, fomenting this. And then you obviously have these terrible situations of people uh, setting fire to proposed accommodation centres or places that are rumoured to becoming accommodation centres uh, over Christmas and New Year. Um, it's interesting that there's no arrests have been made in respect of that. It'd be interesting to see if Gardaí start making arrests in respect of that. Yeah, although Helen McEntee is quoted yeah. in one of the papers today as being very confident or, or yeah, sure yeah, and, and like just from reading some of my, you know, some some of the crime journalists uh, writing about this in recent weeks, that does Gardaí don't appear to think that there's any level of coordination around this nationally. That there's some sort of organised campaign, but it's just kind of people locally. Uh, you know, do it, carrying this out. There's no coordination necessarily. That that might prove to be true. That might not prove to be true. But uh, you know, I think we're going to see probably going to see arrests in respect of this in the coming weeks. That might change people's attitudes towards going to to do this now. Um, yeah. Well, in in other news uh, this this weekend, there's a discussion, uh, Adrian, and it related to the capital city. It, uh, I think it's the Irish Times has this. It is a Dublin's unloved lanes and whether or not street closures are the solution to antisocial problems. This is because during the week, a lane got sort of um, boarded up, effectively because people were living in it, using it as a toilet, all of the usual stuff that happens in uh, lanes in the city centre. The suggestion now is let's close them all. I think it's a little bit of a storm whipped up over a temporary potentially closure of a one laneway in Dublin. But it does beg the question about what, what's the overall plan that we have, because closing one lane isn't going to solve any issues. It'll just move the antisocial behaviour to the lane next over. So, um, But it is interesting that the council did commission a report a few years ago and um, about what to do with the laneways in 18 laneways in Dublin city centre. Every 18? Well, apparently we have 18 uh, troublesome laneways, but um, I, I would have presumed there'd be a lot more. Um, and they were, they commissioned I missed the one that used to go from, I think it was Delir Street to the Screen Cinema under the, what was then 
the Dublin Gas Company and is now bored. Gosh, that was a lovely lane. Was it? What did you do? It was just a nice lane to go down. It was a picturesque lane. It had a little bridge over the top and now it's all closed up. Yeah, it's a very nice one. Um, (laughs) So there was a a report commissioned by an architectural firm with what could we do to reduce antisocial behaviour in um, the the main trouble spots in Dublin city centre. The problem is that nothing was done with that report at the time. At least we have the report commission that it could be acted on straight away. And some of the proposals that were put forward there were um, the idle shop fronts that are around these troublesome spots to have a regeneration plan in terms of getting retail and footfall back around there. Because if there's more visibility, less crime is going to take place. So um, I do think the council needs to probably act on that rather than close one lane and hope for the best. And it's a continuing part of the ongoing, now several year old story, of Dublin being generally manky and unwelcoming. Yeah, there's a lot of work that we need to do, even just visually cleaning the place up, getting the graffiti off the walls. And and, and it brings, you know, I suppose punishing street crime, low-level street crime like graffitiing and, you know, larger street crime like dealing on the back streets. I mean, we have to clamp down on those minor issues to solve the larger issues. Which went to, I mean, Hugh, you were talking about the riots. A lot of the analysis at the time of the riots said that it was the, the final eruption of all of that kind of antisocial behaviour which yeah, becomes sort of so an, an, common in the city. The final culmination of, of a problem that had been sort of festering since COVID in particular when the streets were empty but obviously there were there were some people who were kind of occupying those streets um, you know, people who weren't able to access accommodation for whatever reason or had I, I think, uh, substance uh, abuse problems. One, one of the areas that um, they're saying was a real success yeah. in terms of regeneration was the old Italian quarter the Millennium Walkway mm, there yeah. um, between the Liffey there. That's yeah. a push really isn't it? That uh, Italian well, it quarter. A, well, you know, it is. It's one restaurant. <laughs> it brought it back to life. Well, at a shove. <laughs> one Italian <laughs> restaurant, <laughs> maybe. Exactly. Like it's, it's hard yeah. to literally. Well, it brought but, it back to life anyway. <laughs> anyway, putting <laughs> my cynicism to one side. Street, street closures, I mean, the questions posed, the street closures the solution to antisocial problems? No, because you're just pushing them elsewhere. So, like, closing streets is not the solution here. There are some better solutions in terms of, as, uh, some, some of the ones that Adrian mentioned there, in terms of cleaning them up. Uh, you know, maybe running things on those streets, uh, you know, FETs or whatever. I I don't know. I just think that closing off these streets is not necessarily the solution. And like what, what I like about Olivia Kelly's piece in the Times today is juxtaposing that with like, you know, we go on our holidays and we go down, you know, small side streets and stuff like mm. that and they're picturesque and they're beautiful and it's all lovely and, and we don't really have that in Dublin, you know. No, you go down a side street no they're not and picturesque and beautiful. That is not the phrase <laughs> to apply not. to them. Um, it, the other uh, thing that is in the papers this weekend and is making a lot of news is the issue of hospital waiting lists yeah. and the significant numbers of people on them. It's, it's in the hundreds of thousands and it is in the tens of thousands of people who are waiting for more than a year for surgery. Yeah, look, I mean, this is a perennial issue. Um, it's six more than six hundred seventy thousand public patients are stuck in backlogs. Um, I, I think it's important to say that, like, you know, the waiting lists are getting better. I think um, you know there has been some progress over the last two years in in um, decreasing the number of people on waiting lists. But there's a huge backlog. Uh, you know, part of it's related to. I mean, part of it is, is historic. We've we've had waiting list problems in Ireland for for decades. Uh, but also, you know, backlog of COVID. People kind of, you know delayed diagnoses, all these kind of things. What's interesting as well is is that, um, you know, University uh, Hospital Limerick is, is considered one of the worst hospitals in the country in terms of overcrowding, particularly in emergency departments. Um, but they, they're, um, uh, they have, I think, just 23 patients waiting over a year for, uh, uh, for uh, on a waiting list, sorry. 
And uh, when you compare that to University Hospital Wartford, which is considered one of the best in terms of low trolley numbers, uh, they have over 1,300 patients waiting over a year. Um, so it is interesting, I think, in that respect. That, But why is this the permanently insoluble problem? I mean, the National mm. Treatment Purchase Fund was set up in, in what, 2004? I think it's nearly so, 20 yeah. years old, which was an emergency measure to buy mm. foreign surgery to clear down the waiting list, yeah. and it seemed to be doing it. And now, 20 years on, we have exactly the same problem. Yeah, but but, but wasn't it kind of dialed down a bit, I think, at one point politically? Because there was we a decision we were taken, on the road. Because we were on the road, and then it was it, Fianna Fáil, as part of confidence and supply with, with Fine Gael, sort of, argued for its retention or for it to be brought back and used again. So there's been a lot of political messing around with this. Um, you know, Steve Donnelly's latest thing, the health minister, his latest thing is these surgical hubs. He was at, at one in Mount Carmel yesterday in Churchtown in Dublin, and he was um, this new surgical hub they're going to set up for, for day cases, I think, to, 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 kind of, to clear day patient uh, waiting lists. Um, so he's ho- hoping to set these up in, in sort of large urban centres around the country over the next I couple of years. I think it would be really interesting to find out um, what numbers are moving off the lists because they're going private. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people go private. And, I mean, and they're reducing the, the list, so it might you know? falsely um, yeah. give a, a more favourable view on the yeah. waiting list. Reducing. Oh, and the amount of people that you talk to who say they, they got told, well, look, you can go through the system, but you'll wait yeah. 18 months. But if you fall back out and start again on the private system, you can have yeah. it done in three weeks. For, for me, the bigger thing about health is, is that, uh, you know, waiting lists are, are like when you look at it politically the, the opposition are, are you know they give out a lot about health and they give all, a lot out a lot about the performance of the health minister but their primary criticism at the moment is the funding of the health service and, and the underfunding of the health service as they see it and indeed as the health minister argues as well that he hasn't been given enough money for the HSE to do its job this year um, so that's going to be the big debate I think going in, into 2024 but obviously Hundreds of thousands of people on waiting lists is not good. And let's let's finish with the, uh, from my perspective, faintly ridiculous news that Ireland has set the record for the single most expensive bottle of whiskey ever sold. <clears throat> this is the um, Whiskey and Wealth Club uh, madness. I mean, if you have enough money, you're going to believe marketing guff. And actually, there's a little bit more of a, a twist to this story. Mm. But basically, the most expensive bottle of whiskey, Irish whiskey ever sold, has sold for 2.5 million euro. It's by an Irish company based in Dublin City Centre called the Craft Irish Whiskey Company. But the interesting thing about it is they're only six years in business, which is, you know, I have to say very impressive in terms of your your record. Um, And this bottle of whiskey is... um, a single malt whiskey uh, contained in a case with a Fabergé egg, a single decanter, an emerald gem and a custom timepiece with a pair of Cohiba, if I'm pronouncing that right, cigars. Mm. So, uh, as we said earlier... Oh, that explains the 2.5 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Cigars in at last. It's, it's the kind of fluff on the side, I think. Yeah. it's some, uh, An American investor has bought it. And I, I mean, there are a huge amount of people who invest heavily in whiskey. This particular company, though, when you look into the back of them, um, Jay Buckley is the, is the founder of this company and he was... Um, forced to stop retailing in the state of Texas uh, recently. Now, he had it overturned, but there was an emergency cease and desist order placed upon the company because basically the state was concerned about their marketing um uh, well, the marketing the is clearly effective if they're getting something well, spent 2.5 million it's quid. It's certainly working. Whiskey. Would you have any interest, you? Any? No, well, I don't have the money to start. Give it time. <laughs> Give it as time. we were saying off air, you know, I buy whiskey and I drink it. I don't buy whiskey and look at it. <laughs> Hugh O'Connell, Deputy Political Editor at the Irish Independent, Adrian Sweeney, Director of Paris Court Springs Health Farm, and of course from our newsroom here at News Talk. Thank you both very much. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday. With Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine. On News Talk.